series, Getting Us Ready for the Steam Launch. This two-week series is entitled Borrowed Ground. Borrowed Ground. It actually stems from a comment that Pastor Kari made in her sermon several weeks back when she talked about the children of Israel crossing the Jordan River and when they walked out into the middle of the dry riverbed that they, she says, in just a passing comment, she said, they were living on borrowed ground for a few moments. And then she moved on into a really wonderful message. But as I listened to the, the message, the, the sermon, something struck me. And I felt like we were supposed to go back and hang out on that phrase, borrowed ground. That there's something about this, that this journey that we're on as Christians that, that includes this, this no man's land, that, that includes this, this dry riverbed, that includes this place leaving bondage and slavery and moving into a land of promise. But somehow there's a, a land that's borrowed that all of us trod on for at least a moment. I want to talk to you this morning about living life on borrowed ground. Will you join me as we pray? God, this morning as we take time to talk about what it is that you have to say to us, Will you help me, God, to hear what you have to say and to pause where you want me to pause and to move forward where you want me to move forward? I want to hear what you're saying today, God. We love you and need you. In Jesus' name, amen. I think it's important that we go back and look just for a minute as to what it is that we're living in now as a theme for our church. Our theme currently is your move. Two words, your move. And we believed 48 weeks ago as we launched into our theme that God was going to give us all some sort of a a directive, a a move to make, a step to take, some place in our life where we were going to, to, to move out from what was safe, perhaps, move out from what was comfortable, maybe, move out from what seemed Um, I don't know, secure, and to move into a place of saying, God, I need to trust you with all of my heart. And that that God was telling us, literally 48 weeks ago, that he was challenging us to make a move in our life. Now, maybe you weren't here back then. Uh, Maybe you weren't here back then. You were somewhere else. It wouldn't surprise me in the least to see that God had been saying that very thing to you. I mean, you made a move to get here at some point. And maybe, maybe the move getting here was exactly what you needed to move you on to whatever it is that's going to be next. I think God has every one of us on this continuum of, of moving us from, from immaturity to maturity. And every one of us has an opportunity to choose to grow up. You don't have to choose to grow older. But you do need to choose to grow up. And too often, too often, we just think growing older is what God's called us to be and do. Growing up is the choice we have to make. There's nothing worse than seeing a 65-year-old, 14-year-old. Come on. Amen, or oh my, or dear Jesus, or something, right? I think God wants us to move from immaturity to maturity. I think God wants us to learn to grow up. I think God wants us to take steps that are going to cause us to grow up. It's like any other place in life, right? If I were to tell you to get stronger, you, you couldn't just close your eyes and wish for strength. At some point, getting stronger includes lifting of something heavy off your chest, and you do that enough time, and you start to get muscle on you. It's the same way spiritually. At some point, you begin to lift some spiritual heavy weights and begin to get stronger. I think there's part of us that God is strengthening in this journey, leading us to a place where we'll move out into our, into our move that he intended for us to make. If you have your Bibles, open it up to the book of Joshua. Joshua chapter 3. I want to give you just a little bit of a background before we move into the message, because I think it's important that you understand some context. 
The, the older I get, the longer I journey with Christ, the, the, the more I read my Bible, the more in love with the Old Testament I've become. I know pastors that just hang out in the New Testament, and there's nothing wrong with the New Testament. I love the New Testament. But I'll tell you what, if you want to see your New Testament come alive, read the Old Testament, because the New Testament really is, is just glasses for a message that God had been speaking for a long, long time before that. It's amazing to me when I begin to read the Old Testament with New Testament understanding, with New Testament perspective, maybe even New Testament uh, goggles on, if you will. Look at what it says in Joshua chapter 3. So remember who, who, what's happening here. The children of Israel had left Egypt 40, 40, 42 years before this point. The children of Israel were enslaved and in bondage in, in, in Egypt. That They were there literally under a taskmaster, Pharaoh, who was there. Many of you saw the movie, man. You read the stuff, you know, about the exodus and that whole journey, right? Those people all came out, and they wandered around a desert for 40-some years. And as they were wandering around the desert, they were literally uh, walking in disobedience. Early on, two, two or three years into their journeying around the desert, Moses came to them from the Lord and said, hey, I'm going to send out some spies. They're going to go out and look at this promised land that we're supposed to get. They were leaving slavery and bondage. They went through a desert. They were heading into a land of promise. Now, what happened was the children of Israel, Moses sent out 12 spies. They came back. Ten of the spies said, there are giants in the land. We can't do it. Two of, them, of the 12 came back and said, you're nuts. We can take these guys. God's big. He's on our side. Joshua and Caleb were those two. God said to the children of Israel, all of you who are 20 years old and older will all not enter the promised land. You'll all die right here in the desert. So for 40 years, they all lived their journey out in the desert, wandering around until all of them died. Joshua now takes the baton from Moses. Joshua and Caleb, one of the two spies, Joshua now, probably in his 80s, I don't know where he was, 60s or something, but there was something about Joshua who literally was now going to lead them into the promised land. So get this, it's the children of the slaves that are now getting ready to cross over into some land of promise. Get the picture? They're getting ready to cross over into the promised land. What is the promised land? Look at what it says in Joshua 3, 5. Joshua tells the people, and these are the kids of the ones who were enslaved. Joshua told the people, purify yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do great wonders among you. In the morning, Joshua said to the priest, lift up the Ark of the Covenant and, the, and lead the people across the river. And so they started out into the promised land. Today in Israel, uh, I was over there just this last fall, and, and you see, you know, I, I've been, you've seen pictures of the Middle East perhaps on TV. Maybe some of you have even journeyed over there. And you see basically everything is kind of deserty, brown, and all the buildings are painted, you know, somewhat. I remember my son one time watching, we were watching, and he goes, Dad, I wonder what the paint, the, the, the paint shop looks over in Home Depot in the Middle East. I said, what do you mean? He goes, there's only one choice, khaki. And I was like, what? Everything's painted that same color. I don't know. But nevertheless, so I remember over there, you've seen pictures, right? There's not much going on over there in terms of life. And, all. and yet God called this the land of promise. When we went over there this last time, it was crazy. We went up, up, up in the north, Lebanon up here, Syria over here, or Syria down here, Lebanon up here. And, and get this, it, we went up into this place. It was some of the most beautiful place I've ever seen. If you've never been to the northern part up near Mount Hermon, it's beautiful. It's like literally it's like the Pacific Northwest. Green trees, water you can kneel down and drink from, but soft brooks, meadows. I mean, it's beautiful. No one talks about that. 
Well, here's the crazy thing. When the children of Israel sent, when God sent the spies out, they actually went up there and they came walking down. It's amazing to me because I think they came back with that picture in their mind of this land overflowing with milk and honey. Now, we don't talk like that. We don't say milk and honey. We say something different. But nevertheless, they were trying to show that this was a land of, of prosperity. This was a land of, uh, of provision. This was a land of security, of stability, of their own identity. Literally. So the children, the 12 spies went up there. They came back. Two of them said we can do it. Ten of them said we couldn't. Now, 40 years later, they're getting ready to cross over into this land of promise. In this land of promise that they were going to cross into what were, were going to be some battles because it was occupied at this point. The land of promise was occupied by people. There were people groups that were there doing whatever people groups do when they live and protect and fight. The 10 guys that came back from the exploration as spies came back with a report and called them giants. They said, There are giants in the land of promise. How will we win when we are like grasshoppers to them? Because they're like enormous giants. They win, we lose. They fight, we don't. I mean, that's what they began to see in their mind's eye. They began to see all the things that was impossible. They never got to see what was possible. But can I just tell you something? If you've never heard this from me before, you will again. (laughs) You can't receive a miracle until you put yourself into a position that requires one. Some of you are like, I don't want a miracle then. Right? You can't get a miracle until you're put into a position that requires one. There were giants up there in that land. There were giants that they had to get past, that they had to get through. Go down and read in uh, chapter 3, verse 13. Let's move on. You'll hear a little bit more about this story. Verse 13 says this. The priests will be carrying the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth. When their feet touch the water, the flow of water will be cut off upstream and the river will pile up in one heap. When the people set out across the Jordan, the priests who were carrying the Ark of the Covenant went ahead of them. Now it was harvest season, and the Jordan was overflowing its banks. But as soon as the feet of the priests who were carrying the Ark touched the water at the river's edge, the water began piling up at a town upstream called Adam, which is near Zarethan. And the water below that point flowed down to the Dead Sea until the riverbed was dry and all the people crossed over near the city of Jericho. Meanwhile, the priests who were carrying the Ark of the Lord's Covenant stood on dry ground in the middle of the riverbed as the people passed them by. They waited there until everyone had crossed the Jordan on dry ground. You have to understand something, that there was nearly, probably a little better than a half a million people who were moving from from the desert, arid, dry, lifeless, children of slaves, children of bondage, children of people who were in, in, in absolutely beat up and taken advantage of in Egypt. These are those kids who only knew, who only knew lifeless, desolate, desert, nomadic living. That's all they knew. They didn't, they, they may have heard stories of the good old days. They may have heard stir, of the good old days making bricks for Egypt, right? Uh, they, 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 maybe they heard stories of all of that stuff. But this is the children of Israel who had lived in this, this lifeless, arid, provided for place. Remember, God was providing food for them every day quail and manna and all that kind of stuff God would provide for. The children of Israel knew that. They knew that they were leaving that place at some point to move into a land of promise where, where, where maybe they heard some of the stories from Joshua and Caleb. It's interesting, but I think it was in the book of Numbers that when we go back to the, the, the spies, 
It says that the, this is interesting to me. The spies came back. Ten of, ten of the spies said we can't do it. Two of them said we could. The Bible then says, I should have wrote it down. There's a number or something. But it says that, that the, the children of Israel, the ten spies said, oh, shoot, we're kidding. I think we can do it. I think we can beat them. Let's, let's all go. So the Bible says that a whole bunch of them packed up to go fight the battle. And they got whooped. They went in their own strength to try to, to, to try to subdue the land in their own strength. Some of those guys came back, and you know they had a report. And the report was probably, let's believe Joshua and Caleb, but holy cow, those guys are huge. So you've got to imagine the testimony inside their hearts of these desert nomadic people who are going to cross some crazy river into a land of promise to just start fighting to just start a journey to start possessing land. They weren't going to go over there and have it handed to them. There's nobody over there saying, hey, here's the keys to my house. You have my car. None of that stuff, right? Literally, it was a bunch of people who were heading over to a place that was completely terrifying. Hmm. How about you? How about you today? Is there a place in your life that you have been living? Maybe it's been a lifeless, arid season of your life. Maybe it's been a season where God's provided, but you felt no hope. Where you knew that one day you want to find this place that's out there somewhere, a place of peace, a place of maturity, maybe even a place of wholeness. It's out there somewhere. You're hoping that one day you'll find it. But right now you find yourself in this hopeless, dry, arid season of life. And maybe like the children of Israel, you have this I doubt it mentality at the back of your mind that says, I don't know, God seems to help everybody but me. Maybe that's how you've been living too. Maybe you're, maybe you're in a place in your life when you're ready to say, okay, enough is enough. I'll fight a few giants if that's what it's going to take. I'll, I'll fight a few battles if it's going to mean that I get to move into a place of promise. And if that's you today, I'm so glad you're here. This message is for you. This message is for all of us to begin to realize that this journey we're on, this journey we're on is really a place of peace that God intended for all of us to get to. Yet far too few of us actually get to the place where we actually begin to move forward and possess the land. Too many of us live with the hope that one day it'll happen. It's interesting to me. We talk about this promised land. The promised land. In the Old Testament, the promised land we know of because the promised land of the Old Testament was literally ground. It was real estate. It was, it was, it was a, a place that they could go and, and build a house and start a city and do the things that they were going to do. The, the Old Testament understanding of the promised land was a physical dwelling, real estate, dirt on the ground. For you and I, as we read this, this idea and we try to, to try to somehow make it make sense in our own brains, what is the promised land for you and me? If you listen to any old uh, church songs, perhaps, you, you see that the church, in my opinion, had a little bit of a misunderstanding of what, what the promised land is. Some of us think that the promised land for New Testament believers is a picture of heaven. That somehow this promised land, we're going to go there. I, I remember singing a song when I was uh, I auditioned uh, for a vocal scholarship in college as a freshman. And I remember singing this song called Poor Wayfair and Stranger. And it was all about this stranger who wanders through the desert and then comes to a place where he's going to finally find his home in the promised land. And it was literally talking of heaven. And I'm just telling you, I don't think that's what the promised land is supposed to be for New Testament, you and I, believers. I think... When we put on New Testament understanding and we look at the Old Testament truth, I think there is a promised land for you and me too. But I don't think it's heaven. I think it's a, why do I not think it's heaven? Because I hope it's not heaven. Because when I get to heaven, I hope I'm not going to be fighting a bunch of giants in heaven. 
I hope I'm not going to be doing a bunch of battling in heaven. I think, honestly, the promised land for you and I as New Testament believers is about here on earth. It's about you and I literally fighting giants to come to a place of spiritual maturity where we grow up in Christ. See, a lot of us kind of tend to think that if I go to church enough, read my Bible enough, say enough things that are nice and kind to people, that I'll get to this heaven thing, and that's where life's going to begin. Let me tell you this. When you were saved or you surrendered your life to Jesus, the Bible says your life began. Right? There's something about you. You came to life. Your heart was turned from stone to flesh. Right? Jesus, he literally said, I'm going to give you a heart of flesh. What does that mean? It means you started living then. There's something that God wanted you to do, John 10, 10, to have life and life more abundant. Where? Here and there. Stop looking at me so blankly. I mean, there's something about this, right? He wants us to move forward into this land of promise. Well, let me explain, since I've confused you. In the Old Testament, listen to this. In the Old Testament, there were giants, right? We know the giants are in the land. I, I, I don't have time to explain it to you, and if you want all the details and the resources that I cite in this whole thing, then please email the church, heather at pscc.net. We'll get them to you. She's my assistant. Uh, yeah, show you, she's, my, she's amazing. But I'll tell you this. There were seven people groups, seven giants, seven groups of people. I shared with you several years ago about the names of all the different tribes, the, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Jebusites, the, all the ites that were over there, right? Well, they all had meanings to their names. So as I did some research a few years back, I thought it was a good idea to bring it back as, in this message to help you see a little bit. Again, I'm only going to give you a, a little tip of information. There's lots more to that. Please, and I'll get you the information if you want it. Listen to this. Over there, there were the Amorites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, and the Girgashites. Say that fast. Listen to this. All those people were over there. Now listen to this. This is crazy. The Amorites' name meant pride. Pride. The Amorites were people who were an arrogant, boastful people in their speech and activity. Listen to this. The Hittites, the Bible says, or the, the definition of the word Hittites means compromise or a land of many gods. The Hivites were known as the villagers that lived in fear and terror. They were literally a wicked or a, a wicked people who terrorized people with their lives, the Hivites. The Jebusites, descendants of Jebus, their name meant oppression, to be oppressed and to, to, to push down. The Canaanites' name meant shame, shame, to put something on you. Literally, they were people who were merchants who had lots of money and humiliated those who were less than in their eyes. The Perizzites' name meant indecision. These were a nomadic villagers who, who literally grazed around from place to place to place and had no significant land that they called their own. And seven, the Girgashites. The Girgashites were a dwelling uh, on clayey soil. They, they literally were a faithless people. It means faithlessness. The Girgashites were a people who went back and forth and saying what they believed, and then they waffled in what they said they believed, and they kept on changing their gods. So imagine this. The children of Israel were leaving from a dry, arid desert place. They were going to fight giants in this land whose names all had a meaning. And the meanings were this. Pride, compromise, fear, oppression, shame, indecision, and faithlessness. Huh. See, I have a funny feeling that some of these same giants are in the land that you're trying to occupy. Just a thought. I got a funny feeling that, 
that some of you are still fighting with pride. But maybe perhaps some of you even are dealing with compromise in your life. Perhaps there's a fear that has gripped you and held you down. Maybe you've walked in oppression, shame, indecision, or perhaps even faithlessness. See, maybe there's things in your life that that, that God wants you to subdue, to eradicate, to, to, to leave from the land, to kill, to destroy, to get out fear, shame, compromise, all of these giants in the land. Why do I think that the promised land is not heaven? That. Because there are still things in our journey that I believe God wants us to begin to subdue. And what happens when, what would happen if you fought and battled all of these giants in your land? You know what would happen? One, I think it'd be spiritual maturity. That would be, that would be so exemplified by one emotion or one feeling, one, one peace. To fight shame, compromise, fear, indecision, all that kind of stuff. You know what you'd be filled with? Spiritual maturity that shows up in peace. Peace of mind and heart. The same thing that Jesus sent his Holy Spirit here for us to battle to maintain. It's the Holy Spirit that's going to fight these battles. In the same way of the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would go before them as a pillar of fire, would go into battle before them. Remember the story of Jericho, the very first battle, as they fought that, right? It was the Holy Spirit. All they had to do was go on a long walk and yell. And God showed up. There are giants in the land ahead of us. I think what happens is is there are so many of us that see the giants and we do just like the children of Israel. Pride, fear, shame, compromise, indecision. We say, you know what? Too much for me. I'll just hang out over here in the desert. It ain't so bad over here. This lifeless, arid, lonely, isolated place. I'll just hang out here because this is as good as it gets. And maybe that's where you find yourself today, living in this desert land, living in this lifeless land, living in this place where there's no hope. Where, where it's too hot to do anything, it's, it's too cold at night to do anything. You find yourself completely uncomfortable, but you exist there because the giants seem too big to subdue. I'm here to tell you today, church, that's not the truth. It's a lie from the pit of hell because it's not your strength that's going to fight these giants. It's the power of the Holy Spirit in you that will. But you have to be willing to pick up the sword and walk. Now say amen. That's what God's calling us to. Hmm. the goal of our life is that we would walk in perfect peace with him perfect peace with the Lord and each other that's why he said that Jesus said love your neighbor as yourself Jesus said love God love people you know you really can't love anybody until you finally grow into places of spiritual maturity because if you don't have a place of spiritual maturity all your love looks like is a bunch of taking love me love me love me love is a give love is a give love is a give we can't fully give until we're somewhat satisfied and contented in what god has made us to be as humans then we can truly begin to love another and i think that starts to happen when we begin to fight some of selfishness pride uh, compromise indecision all those kinds of things that exist as giants in our land hmm so what is this borrowed ground thing Borrowed ground. Well, the children of Israel, the Bible says that they went from this dry, arid land. The Bible says that the priests, there were four priests, they were holding poles, two in front and the two in back, and between them was this Ark of the Covenant. It was the place that housed the Ten Commandments, Aaron's rod that budded, and a jar of manna. It was all sitting in there, right? So the priests would carry this. They were a half a mile in front of the rest of the half a million people, 600,000 people or so, and they're carrying this thing. And as soon as their feet hit the water's edge, the Bible says the water started to back up. I always wonder what it would have been like to have been the first guys. 
you know, the, the first guys carrying the poles, I would have been like, hey, stop pushing, stop pushing that. You know what I mean? Because like, you're going in. By the way, this river was at flood stage. It wasn't just like a river. Like the, it was a, you ever seen a river at flood stage? They're the kind that are like, I mean, you can go to Israel today and you can see down over by the Dead Sea, it's one big fat valley that's just lifeless because when that thing's at flood stage, it at one point would get so crazy wide. I mean, really wide, half a mile across at some points, really big, right? And so really, really wide, really fast rushing water. And you're the first guy, right? So you go walking in as soon as you start to do it. Now, the, the, the thing didn't stop like that. It says the water started backing up, right? So what are you up to your thighs before you're going like, nothing's happening, fellas, I, don't, I mean, I don't know what happened, right? But nevertheless, they began to walk out there. And as they kept walking, the water kept going lower. It says the water began to, to back up, right? To, to back up at a place. It says they crossed at the place near Jericho. It's, you know, 600,000 people didn't need, not need mine, nine miles to walk across. But somehow the water backed up from, from, from the place called Adam all the way down to the Dead Sea. And the Bible says that this wind blew after them and that somehow the, the, the land was dry. You would think walking in on land that water had stopped on, if you ever watch the Discovery Channel, they get it all wrong. I'm telling you, it it wasn't just wind that just somehow made the, the, the wind dried the ground, but they walked on dry ground. They didn't walk out there in muddy ground. They're absolutely a pathway made for them. Hmm. So what is this borrowed land? This borrowed land to me is this piece of land called a riverbed. Nobody really owned it. There was the desert that was somebody's land, and then there was the promised land that was somebody's land. Today, when we buy land on water, you get, you know, 15, 20 feet out there. But back then, it was a border. The river was a border between two lands. When the river stopped, the river began to be no man's land. When the river stopped and it was backed up, it was dry. It belonged to no one. It was borrowed land. The children of Israel began to walk out, literally leaving behind. Now remember, the Ark of the Covenant with the the, the manna and the Ten Ten Commandments and the Aaron's staff that budded were parked in the middle of this dry riverbed. Children of Israel became walking across, and they all walked past it. They all walked past the presence of God that was holding back the water as they were heading into the land of promise. What, What an amazing sight that must have been. One second, the thing is at flood stage, and just a short period of time after that, there's dry ground. Amazing to me how God would make a way. It's amazing to me to think that not only would God make a way, but he would make a way in such, such a dramatic fashion. They had heard that their parents crossed the Red Sea 40-some years before. They'd heard that God parted the waters with Moses holding his staff up, but they'd never seen anything like that. So they see, they see God show up and open up this This place called borrowed ground. The land that belonged to no one. A land that had no giants in it. It was a land that had uh, a place to walk on for sure. But it was a land that you couldn't exist in forever because it was temporary. See, I have the sense in my heart today for our church that some of you have, have made the decision to leave the land of the desert the lifeless, arid desert, and you've started your journey across into the promised land, but you stopped in the middle of a riverbed because you started to smell the giants in the land. And you're trying to live on borrowed ground. You're trying to live in this place that won't last forever. It's this place that's temporary on purpose. 
You're living in the existing in, in a place that, that just a few moments later, the water's going to come rushing back and flood you. But there's this barred ground that feels safe. It feels different from there, but, but it's not where you're supposed to be. And my fear is that some of us have been living in this borrowed ground far too long. And I'm here to tell you, it's time to move on. It's time to make your move. It's time for you to pack up and say, enough of this. I'm ready to fight. Pride, arrogance, faithlessness, indecision. Come on, if this word's for you, say amen. See, you're not alone. There's a choice that needs to be made. Far too many of us, I think honestly that the borrowed ground, it comes down to one word, grace. I think the borrowed ground is just a picture of grace. How do I know? Well, because of the nature. Remember, when you read the Old Testament, put New Testament filters on. As you look into the New Testament, through the New Testament, here's what you get. What is God's grace? God's grace is unmerited favor. Favor you didn't work for. What is crossing a dry riverbed? Unmerited favor. And get this, you know where the water backed up to? It backed up to a city called Adam. You know where it went down to? It went down to a place called the Dead Sea. Wait a second. God made, maybe, God, maybe God's trying to show us something. Maybe God made a way all the way from Adam down to death. God made a way for us to walk through this borrowed land to get to our fight, our promise. But he did it all the way from Adam to death. See, when Jesus died on the cross, I don't think, sometimes people think that Jesus died on the cross, shed his blood for our sin, and then from that point on, he, he removed all sin. I don't think so. I think what happened was, is literally Jesus died on the cross, and when he rose from the dead, and that whole thing happened, resurrection, when he died, literally salvation was done before and after. Like it happened from Adam to death. How? Because the scripture like this begins to say like salvation was all, how does that work? I don't know. All I know is there was something that God said. He said, I made a way of grace to pass through. Don't live in grace only. Too many of us want to just live in grace. What does that mean? It means that some of us want to live a sloppy Christian life in compromise and in fear and in shame and in indecision. And we live being fought. And so we stay safe in this borrowed ground. And it's time for us to pack up and begin to fight the battles. Amen. Joshua 3.15 says this, Now it was harvest season, Jordan was overflowing its banks. But as soon as the priests carrying the ark touched the water's river's edge, the water began piling up upstream, down called Adam, and flowed to a point down to the Dead Sea. In order for us to move past the borrowed ground, three quick things and we'll be done. We first of all need to know where we came from. If you're going to get beyond borrowed ground, you've got to realize how horrible the desert really is and stop singing the songs of its greatness because the desert is a dry, arid, lifeless, hopeless place. And some of us have actually thought that's a better place than fighting giants. Second of all, in order for us to move to bar off borrowed ground, you need to know where you're standing now. If you're in borrowed ground and you're standing here in the presence of the Lord, enjoy it, walk in it, it's awesome and be in it. But remember, it's borrowed ground. It's not where you're supposed to exist forever. It's a, it's a, it's a pass-through. God's intention is to get you to the land of promise, not to keep you in a, a dried-up riverbed. He wants to move you on into the place that he intended for you to live. In order for us to move past this borrowed ground, not only do we need to know where we came from, where we are, but we've got to know where we're going. You've got to know that there are going to be some fights. There's going to be battles against your pride. 
There's going to be battles against oppression. There's going to be battles against all kinds of fear. Here's the thing. Every one of us is going to have these giants to fight. But the great news is, is you don't have to do it in your own strength. But you've got to fight. You have to get up and fight. This isn't a battle someone can fight for you. You can't hang on to your spouse who, who's the spiritual strength in your family. You have to fight your own battle, your own pride, your own compromise, your own indecision, your own shame. You've got to fight that. Begin to move forward in this in Christ. Come on. We need to move off this borrowed ground. Borrowed ground's great. There's a grace there. There's no fights in the borrowed ground. Why wouldn't you just stay there? Because it was never intended to be permanent. It was always intended to be to literally be this moment that's temporary, preparing us for a land of promise. So I want to pray for you today. I think there's those of you today, there are those of you today who are ready to move into a land of promise. And I'll just tell you, it's going to be a fight. And today, some of you need to get saved. Some of you need to surrender your life to Jesus and stop tiptoeing around the pool. You gotta become a Christian today because the, bio, the, the battle is fighting you and it's time for you to start fighting the battle. And so we're gonna take care of that first and foremost. So go ahead and close your eyes if you could. Listen, today, if you're not a Christian, you don't know if you were to die today, you'd go to heaven. Then let's take care of some business. Jesus, I want you to say this with me. Just say it in your heart. Jesus, forgive me for my sin. Take away all of my sin. And fill me with your Holy Spirit. Go ahead, fill me with your Holy Spirit. Jesus, have your way in me. I want to be a Christian today because I want to move on into a land of promise. Now that that's settled, I want to pray for the rest of us. Those of you who know you're Christians. Those of you that know you've been living in this season of arid, dry, waiting for some ship to come in, waiting for some knight in shining armor, waiting for somebody to come up and say something. I'm here to tell you that God sent me to tell you this. It's time to wake up. It's time to get up and begin to walk out of this borrowed ground and into your promise. So as you're sitting there this morning, I want you to say in your heart of hearts, this isn't something you need to say because it's, I tell you to say it. Say it because you mean it. Lord Jesus, give me the strength. Fill me with your Holy Spirit to walk out this journey into my promise. I know there's going to be pride to face. I know there's going to be shame to fight. I know there's going to be fear to subdue. I know there's going to be faithlessness and compromise and all of that stuff ahead of me, Jesus. But I pray that you help me begin this journey to grow up into a place of maturity as we walk this course. In Jesus' name, amen.